0: Hi, I'm Erin. I'm a compulsive reader. I brought pictures. Nothing like pictures to tell a story. Um, I'm super grateful to be here. I listen to this podcast, um, and it's just a huge part of my recovery. So, um, just grateful to have been asked to come and share my experience, strength, and hope with everybody. So nice to see familiar faces, and um, so many unfamiliar faces. Everyone was unfamiliar to me when I walked into this program. Um, And when I walked in in July, uh, July 3rd, I think of 2012, um, I heard my story. And that's why I kept coming back. Um, So what it was like is that I'm like a garden variety dyed in the wool compulsive overeater. Food was my solution to everything from a very young age, specifically sugar. Um, My parents divorced when I was three, and there was just a lot of conflict and drama and instability in my family. Yada, yada, yada. Um, It's a very common story. That's why I say it that way. Um, It's kind of, that's not the important part. The important part was that my uh, disease kicked in when I first stuck my finger in a sugar bowl. And it's like a, a joke in my family that, like, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have let you stick your finger in the sugar bowl, um, that's my mom says. And, and the fact is that that, it saved me, you know? It helped me. I needed to stick <laughs> I needed something. Um, and sugar was there for me. Um, and, um, you know, all through my elementary school years, like, sort of, by the time I was eight, it was showing up on my body. The, sh- the sugar was showing up on my body, the cookies I was sneaking and putting under my pillow at night. Um, you know, those things were showing up on my body, and then my body became a family problem. Um, and so there's, there' begun like a series of negotiations around my weight, my body, my food, um, that really made me feel ashamed um, and less than, um, and other, um, when the fact was that I was a compulsive overeater even then, and I really didn't have language for that until I came into this program at age 40. So, I'm nervous. Can you hear that? But I know this story really well, so, um, (laughs) um, did not have to memorize this um so I probably went on my first diet when I was eight or nine um there was always a negotiation around like if I would eat the carrots and celery in the refrigerator then I could get a record album or I could get some reward there was always like a barter around my food and my body and my weight um and I think the first time, and, and I have to say that I was, like, a little bit chubby. Um, and I think the first time I went on Weight Watchers, I was 12. Um, and then all through my teen years, I was on a very much of a yo-yo of, like, gain 10 pounds, lose 10 pounds, gain 20 pounds, lose 20 pounds, gain 30 pounds, lose 30 pounds, to the point... Uh, When I went on a liquid diet when I was 18, and I lost, like, 60 pounds. And everybody said, thank God, you've got it licked. (laughs) And in my mind, even at that point, I knew I didn't have it licked. I knew I was going to touch my foot on that number and go right back up. And that's exactly what happened. I didn't have language around it. I thought that I was wrong, that I was defective, that, like, my weight... And my struggle with weight and body image was my cross to bear. Um, it just felt like, you know, other people have different problems. This is my problem. I'm always going to have this problem. And it makes me unlovable. Because that was the lesson I got, you know. Um, and so, you know, I basically after that, I went on an every 10-year diet. So, um, like, through my 20s, I was like, you, you know, I was like, pro-fat pro-feminist body image love yourself um you know trying to like do the you know in therapy trying to do the like self-love work that was going to get this disease solved and it didn't work um and you know that feeling of being less than you know, definitely carried through, especially in my relationships. I definitely felt like I didn't deserve love. I didn't deserve um, a relationship because unless my body was a certain way, I was not entitled to that. Um, unless, my, unless I was acceptable to you, I wasn't allowed to have certain things in my life. I wasn't acceptable to me um, and the, the voices in my head, which I now know are the disease voices, were really loud and really mean, um, like vicious, um, and consistent and unrelenting, and um, I drove myself, I do drive myself very hard in other areas of my life, and this was the area where I just felt like, <coughs> I'm a failure, you know, this is just... I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at being a woman. I'm terrible at being appropriate. I'm terrible at being acceptable. And I acted out in a lot of different ways. Um, And I think this disease, like, was hugely influential in the formation of my personality and my character. Um, And um, it kept me separate from you. Um, It definitely kept me feeling below you and acting above you. So I could never be a fellow among fellows, which is a a phrase I've learned in these rooms. I always wanted to be better than people, and I felt like I was worse than people. Um, And fast forward to how I found this program, Um, because I could stay in what it was like forever, but those stories are pretty similar and familiar among all of us. Um, I share it because I want the newcomer listening to this podcast and the newcomer in these rooms to relate and say, huh, maybe that sounds a little bit like me. That's my hope. Um, Because that's what I heard when I first came into the room. Um, So what happened was, I don't know how I heard about OA. (laughs) Like, I literally did not have an Eskimo. I did not have a shepherd, I didn't have a a Sherpa. I didn't have have anybody. Uh, I must have heard about OA through Al-Anon. Um, which I audited. Um, <laughs> I, I never took the class. I never signed up. Um, but I would go for relief sometimes. And um, what, I, what I really wanted in and this is outside issues, but what I really wanted was to be the addict, and I didn't know that I was the addict. Because um, I felt like if I was the addict, then I could do something about it. Um, and... Um, over the summer of 2012, um, I had my dream job. I had 18-month-old twins. Um, I had struggled to get pregnant, and I got pregnant, and I got—I I hit the jackpot. Um, I was married to a great guy, and I was 235 pounds. Um, and um, you know what happened was, I got pregnant. I had the babies. I lost a bunch of weight, and immediately put on 40 pounds. And people were like, it's the baby weight. It's the baby weight. And I, I knew it was not the baby weight. It was the cookie weight. It was, it was the meat going back and forth to the cabinet at night. You know, it was, it was the compulsive behavior, the disease kicking in. Because my best response to life and to fear, which is under everything for me, is food. And I was terrified to have this life that I had dreamed of. I, I was terrified to have these beautiful children who like I didn't know how to be a parent I didn't know how I didn't know how to do anything and twins is a lot um and I had a big job and that was a lot um I didn't know how to be married that was a lot everything was a lot um and so I ate and um you know I lived in New York City I was huffing and puffing going up and down the subway stairs I was um I was having a hard time getting off the couch to play with the kids. Um, I was physically really uncomfortable. Um, I was pre-diabetic. Um, I had gotten that diagnosis. And um, I was in, the, I, in the summer of July, uh, in July 2012, I went on a family trip to a cousin's wedding who I, who I adore. I went on a beach vacation with my kids and my in-laws and my mom. And all I could think about was, are you going to eat that? all I could think about was there's still, like, nachos on the table. What's going... Why is nobody... I I needed to finish those nachos. Like, I had love and beauty all around me and I couldn't be present to it. And then I would look in the mirror and go, all right, you're going to get it. You're going to get it together. You are going to get it together. And I could not get it together. Um, And when I say get it together, I mean lose weight, you know. Take care of this problem. Um, And... Um, after that weekend, I stumbled into the rooms of OA. I and mean, after that vacation, I stumbled into the rooms of OA. Um, I Googled it. I found a meeting. I picked a fight with my husband. Um, <laughs> uh, and he was like, what's going on? And I'm like, don't you understand? I have to go to OA. <laughs> uh, I really did not want to come here. Um, I really, I mean, I think if you're a lifelong um, dieter, eater, binger, whatever, um, fat person, like, you know, that OA exists, the name is a little off-putting, uh, and I had a preconception about what it would be like, um, but I think I was desperate enough to, um, you know, get my, get myself to a room in New York, I went to a beginners meeting, the woman who was leading, um, was 15 years younger than me, maybe 20 years under the and she was telling my story. Um, she was talking about her body being a family problem. She was talking about fat camp. She was talking about huge bowls of cereal um, and, and all the things that were sort of part of my experience. And I cried. I just cried. Um, and um, my higher power saw fit to put, like, someone in the meeting who... I recognized and admired, and I was like, well, she's here. I guess I'll come back. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I came back, and that same person was leaving again, and I asked her to be my sponsor. um, And she was my sponsor throughout the whole time that I lived in New York. And um, um, I got abstinent right away. And I know that's not everybody's story, but for me, it was like right away after 40 years. (laughs) So, um, you know, I really didn't. She told me I had to turn over my food to her. I really didn't want to turn over food that didn't look pretty. I really didn't. I really didn't want to turn over. I really have too much pride. I my pride was helpful to me in this instance. You know, so. Um, I got a nutritionist who gave me a food plan, a nutritionist who understood OA, which I think is really important. Um, and I followed that food plan and I did what my sponsor suggested and I listened to the people in the rooms and I did what they suggested. And I just was desperate enough to be willing to put my ego aside and to say, you know what? I really, bless you, I really don't know how to do this. And I saw recovery in these rooms, and I thought, you guys do. You guys do know how to do this. Um, there's something um, miraculous in these rooms, and I'm not a person who ever had a spiritual vocabulary, um, and I would never have used the word miraculous. Because <laughs> I didn't believe in miracles. I really, whoops, I really didn't. Um, and um, it still sounds silly to me. To say the word miracle, but I don't know what else to call it because I was not someone who was going to recover from this disease without this program. Um, cause no outside commercial weight loss system would address the God side toll, you know, which I, um, I obviously have. Um, so, um, we worked the first three steps by writing 10 minutes on each sentence in the 12 and 12th, 12, um, which took a year. Um, and I needed it to be that slow because I needed the repetition and I needed a practice and I needed um, a way to um, have it sink in. And I needed a way to be reinforced every day that I have this disease. And I started to tease out the disease voice from my voice. And in my head, the disease voice is really aggressive. It's loud, it's mean, it's critical. And the voice of my higher power or my intuition or, you know, the internal light that I have is gentle, um, generous, kind, loving, um, doesn't always need me to do things right away. You know, it's like, it's all right, take care of it tomorrow. Um, I never went, I heard in these rooms, when in doubt, pause. I never paused. It was like, problem, action, problem, action. Like, no time for um, any kind of meditation on anything. I felt like if I wasn't in action, I was failing. Um, And I learned in these rooms, like, things happen in God's time. I'm not in charge of time. I'm very clear about that. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. I had nothing to do with it. I'm not in charge of time. So I wasn't in charge of how my physical recovery happened, but I followed the plan of eating. I did, you know, I, call, I did my best to call three people every day. I call my sponsor every day. I turn over my food every night. And for the first two years, um, before I made a change to my plan of eating, I would text it to my sponsor. And that just kept me totally accountable for my food. And totally accountable for my behavior around food. And, you know, I also have, my abstinence is no sugar, no white flour, um, three meals a day, and an optional snack that I always have. (laughs) I don't know what optional means when it comes to food. Uh, So I have that. Um, And uh, so, you know, and and that's worked for me. Um, The no sugar has just been... A complete liberation, because if it's not an option, it's not a problem for me today. Um, And, um, you know, the my physical recovery, I started 235 pounds in this program, which may have been my top weight, but maybe not quite. And, um, you know, for years, I wouldn't look at the scale. Um, I still don't have a good relationship with the scale. It doesn't ever tell me what I want it to say. and that's fine you know i don't i don't have to like the number um but i'm a normal body size today um i'm a little heavier than my lowest weight in this program but i'm fine um i'm totally fine and i don't have to have like i'm jealous of hundred pounders you know because the numbers are like i'm a compulsive person so i want to do the math in my head over and over again um it doesn't matter um you know, what matters is I can go into a normal store and buy normal clothes. Um, I can look in the mirror and think, oh, you look all right. Um, and, you know, and generally feel like I belong in the world. Like I, I deserve to be in whatever room I'm in. And I can claim my seat, you know, in all areas of my life. I'm present for my kids um, in a way that I never was in the first 18 months of their life. I mean, I was there and I was doing it, but I really don't remember it. Um, and, um, you know, today, like, I can be really, really present with them. Um, we moved to California uh, a year when I was a year into program. And I really would never have done that if I didn't know that you guys were all here. Um, and my sponsor said, when you get to L.A., go to a meeting right away, raise your hand, introduce yourself, and share. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, Okay. And I did. And you welcomed me. Um, You really welcomed me. And I really feel a part of in these rooms. I really feel like a fellow among fellows. Um, You know, I take service positions periodically, not always. Um, Is that five? Thank you. Um, I, um, in the beginning, I was more rigorous about that. And now my career has gotten like a little bit more, crazy and unpredictable, um, but I do, I used to only make it to two meetings a week, somehow I now have the willingness to go to three meetings a week, it sort of snuck in there. How it goes up sometimes, I I had no idea that I would, I now feel like I could go to a meeting every day, that would be great. I did not used to feel that way. It used to be like, I I rigidly scheduled it in, Um, and now, you know, I make it to three meetings even though my life keeps getting bigger. Um, I sponsor two people. I have a sponsor. Um, I read program literature. I've been learning to meditate, um, and periodically able to do that. I feel better when I meditate. Um, you'd think I would always do it since it makes me feel better. Um, I don't. Um, you know, I, I call fellows. They call me. Um, I lean on fellows when I go to visit family. um, I lean on program. I lean on tools. um, And I have been working the steps slowly but surely. Um, I am now on step nine. I am three and a half years in. Um, So, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, But um, program is present for me all the time in every area of my life. And um, it's improved my marriage. It's improved my relationships with my family. And I talk to myself in such a different way. The voices in my head are so different today. Um, I used to be, like, really tough. Like, I used to be hard. Um, I used to approach the world with, like, a kind of a sass and an attitude. And um, gentleness was terrifying to me. Tenderness was terrifying to me. And today, like, I'm present to my feelings, um, and I'm present to the beauty and the miracles and the wonders of life in a way that um, I was just really scared to be before. Um, I felt like I had to protect myself against being vulnerable. Um, Food was what I used to protect myself from being vulnerable. Extra weight was what I used to protect myself from being vulnerable. Um, And it worked, but there was so much suffering that went along with it. Um, And so for today, even though I don't like having feelings, um, I feel them. And then they pass. And someone in program said to me, feelings are like clouds. They go over. They pass. And then they move on. They just want to be felt. And for me, my way of dealing with life before program was feeling "Ah, food. Um, You know, I really wanted to. I really did not want to have feelings because I think as a kid it was not safe to have feelings. There was no room for me to have feelings. Nothing was going to get fixed if I had feelings. Uh, I just had to be tough. And I don't have to be so tough today. You know? I really don't. Um, It's okay to be tender. It's okay to be soft. It's it's okay to be vulnerable. And um, I learned that here. I didn't learn that in my family of origin. I didn't learn that from my husband. I didn't learn that, you know, from my kids, even though they're they're helpful in that lesson, um, you know, and um, my hope is that this program and 12 steps in recovery will be part of my life always. Um, but I also know how cunning, baffling, powerful this disease is, how insidious it is, how sneaky it is. Someone when I was first in program, said that the the disease is like a snake coiled up in the corner of a room like every room you're in it's just waiting to strike and I thought well that's a little hysterical um but I actually believe it today um because you know there's in the big book it talks about like mental blank spots like you can have a mental blank spot and then all of a sudden you're eating chocolate chip cookies or I would be Um, and so for me it's not about like I, I want to say I have to be vigilant, you know, but it isn't about vigilance. It's about just putting one foot in front of the other and taking the next right action and remembering that I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of the universe. I'm not in charge of the outcome of anything. All I can do is, like, take action, be loving, take care of myself, and, and keep showing up here. Um, so that's it. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Mm -hmm. Questions? Um, thanks so much for your share. You mentioned coming into this, with you no know, real spiritual experience of language. How did you, how did you develop something that you could rely on uh, spiritually? About? How did I develop something I could rely on spiritually in this program since I came in with no spiritual practice? It's a good question. I started thinking about nature. Like, for me, the beginning of it is in nature. Um, I just, and this sounds ridiculous, but I don't understand trees. (laughs) Like, I don't. I don't understand corn or pomegranates. Like, I don't get it. Like, why are they the way they are? Uh, I had nothing to do with that. Um, I had nothing to do with the ocean. Um, I had nothing to do with the fact that there's 500 kinds of beetles. Like, what? What? Um, you know, there's something else that's af- afoot here. <laughs> uh, and it isn't me. Um, you know, there's gravity, there's lightning. Like, what What are these things? And um, I sound silly, but for me, it's a starting place of sort of saying, like, wow, there's so much I don't understand. There's so much I don't get about the miraculous beauty of being alive. Um, I also look at people for spirituality and I, and I think, well, we all know what love is. Why is that? You know, we all know what goodness is. We all know what truth is. We all, every culture has an idea of right and wrong and no one individual created that. Um, so I can get a little woo-woo about it. Um, but for me, like, I'm a, I'm a tangible, practical person, and I think part of what this program has done for me is sort of opened me up to mystery, the notion of mystery, and the fact that, like, I do not have most of the answers. Um, and that's sort of the basis of A Higher Power for me. Yeah? So when you moved out here, did you get a new sponsor, or do you still work with the old sponsor? Uh, when I moved out here, I got a new sponsor because my sponsor in New York told me to get a new sponsor. Um, so I do what <laughs> I do what my sponsor says. Um, yeah, I think she felt like to have someone um, local was what would keep my program strong. And um, I looked for a couple weeks and I asked like the harshest, most sort of demanding person that I met. I was like, that's what I need. Uh, and my higher power was like, nope, not available. <laughs> uh, and then I ended up uh, getting another sponsor who is a lot younger than me, whose recovery is amazing. And I just I really liked her spirit, and I thought maybe this will work, and it's been great. So, um, yeah, I don't always know what's best for me, um, but when I follow a sponsor direction, it works. Thank you very much. It sounds like when you walked in the room, you already had a life that had some love in it uh, in varying ways. But uh, you walked the walk from feeling loved to feeling lovable. Could you talk a bit about yeah. that? What a great question. Um, so the question is, how has... Uh, I've, I've made a change from feeling loved in my life to feeling lovable in my life through, this, through being an OA. Um, You know, it's interesting. I think it has to do with identifying the disease voice and not feeling like that disease voice was, was teasing out those two voices in my head or three or whatever. Um, (laughs) One being my higher power, one being the disease and one being sort of my everyday thoughts. Um, And I think taking esteemable actions in this program and showing up and being of service for people and lo- realizing how selfish I was, even though I always thought I was a victim. Um, to recognizing, just finding some humility and recognizing um, when I showed up and I was of service for other people, when I took the actions that my sponsor suggested, when I listened to the people in the rooms, I opened my heart to them. Um, all those things sort of started to make me feel more lovable. Um, and also, when I started to divorce the idea of my weight and my body being the source of my value, um, because I really, really believed that they were before I got here, um, and gradually over time, I have come to believe that they are not. Um, and uh, as a result, I like myself a lot more. So um, I think the more I like myself, the more lovable I believe myself to be. Yeah. Thanks. Indeed. Could you share about your eighth step experience? What is the eighth step? Oh yeah, I mean for me the eighth step was directly correlated with the fourth and fifth step. So um, it took me a year to do my fourth step. Um, It was long. I had a lot of resentment. I also didn't want to do it. because I didn't want to look at my part, right? Um, because I have that pride and that feeling of, like, people did me wrong, but um, what did I do? I was not you know, just happened to me, uh, which is not the truth. Um, and it was very liberating to go, oh, yeah, look at these patterns of what you do. Um, you know, look at your, look at this, looking back through the fourth and fifth steps, I saw, like, oh, I thought every, I make everything about me. I think everything's I take everything personally, um, oh, I'm super judgmental, wow, I'm judging everything all the time, maybe if I'm aware of that, I'll be able to stop doing that, um, and I really worked with my sponsor to, uh, to pour through my fourth and fifth step and say, you know, where do I need to take action, um, and sometimes those actions are direct amends, but for the most part, for me, I'm a goody two shoes. So I, uh, I wasn't going around burning, burning things down or stealing from your wallet, you know. Um, I was, um, you know, silently seething and resenting you. Um, I was holding a grudge and talking behind your back. Um, I was, um, you know, making everything about me when actually other people were in pain. Um, So a lot of my amends um, have to do with praying for other people. Um, And to be frank, I haven't quite gotten there yet in the ninth step. So I know I I made a spreadsheet. I'm a goody two-shoes of everything I need to do and and, uh, check some of those things off. Um, And there are some people I'm going to be praying for for a long time to get rid of my resentment, to get rid of my resentment, not because... They did so much wrong, but because I hold on to it so tightly, um, and um, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Yeah. Hey Erin, we're great here. It sounds to me that when you got here, the desire to overeat was kind of removed. Can you talk about that? Maybe give a new comment. How you crossed that bridge? That's a great question. So it sounds uh, like when I got here, the desire to overeat was removed. I don't know that the desire to overeat was removed quite exactly, because I still want to overeat. You know, I'm three and a half years abstinent. and I still, I, this is a disease of more. So, you know, this morning I, I uh, had a half a cup of cereal, but it is a heaping half a cup. You know, it is like not a level half. I want to get every last thing I'm allowed on my food plan, um, which is why I say I always have my snack, you know, because if I'm allowed it, I'm going to have it. Um, and it might sneak a couple extra almonds in there, but today it's a couple extra almonds. It's not an extra bag of cookies, you know? Um, so all I can say is it's a miracle that the compulsion to overeat has largely been lifted. Um, it's a daily reprieve. It is not a, a eternal solution. I don't trust it. I don't. I don't believe that it can't come back full force. Um, I recognize the relationship between emotions and food for me. And, you know, we have an early warning system in this program. When I notice that my plate's looking pretty full or my mind's distracted by food thoughts, um, which isn't that much these days, but does still happen. Um, Then I know something's up. Then I know some feelings are happening. And then I go, oh, I wonder what those are. I have to I have to find my way to that and the food tells my my relationship to food tells me that. Um, But how did my compulsion get lifted? You guys like coming here and recognizing that there's a solution. I really did not think that there was a solution. I really thought that this was gonna be it for me. Like I was just gonna have this for the rest of my life. I was just gonna drag it around behind me you know for the rest of my life and um I saw it working for other people and I thought I'm a little competitive so I thought well if it can work for them if it can work for them then maybe it can work for me you know not like it's a contest but like well if they have it maybe I can have it um and you know my higher power was on board with that so and has given me the willingness to take action every day um yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what do you do on a spiritual and practical basis when the obsession does get tweaked? What do I do on a spiritual and practical basis when the obsession does get tweaked? You know, for me, the obsession shows up like a little more of something, right? Um, and I can usually identify it at the thought stage and go, huh, like you're thinking about you want more um and sometimes I do overeat a little bit um but for the most part my the tools that I use the plan of eating and turning my food over to my sponsor um, and the fact that I have to be accountable for everything I put in my mouth um you know I, now instead of texting her when I make changes to my before I eat it when I make changes to my plan of eating. Um, I will send, like, a recap of what I changed, um, and I try to be really rigorous about that um, and not um, be squirrely um, because I want to be squirrely. Um, I want to sort of not tell you how much of something I had, even if it's a normal amount, I don't want to tell you because um, I, don't, I don't want to be accountable, but um, I now... I do. I am, um, and I call myself out. Um... And I reach out to fellows, you know. When my feelings are up, I reach out to fellows. Um, And I share really honestly with my sponsor every day. Um, And I raise my hand in meetings and I share. Um, And um, program literature helps. You know, big book study meetings help. Like, all that stuff helps. So, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about how you bring God into your disease anymore? Not just... How do I bring God into the emotional desire for more? You know, I don't know what turning it over really means. Like people say, well, turn it over to God, turn it over to God. Um, but for me, just saying I turn it over to you, whoever you are, God, God of my not understanding um, you know, that does it for me like sometimes it's just like okay fine you know like looking up at the sky and like okay fine or um just like god be with me you know um like it's it's not big or ritualized or anything for me um it's usually just like a little bit of a call for help um and 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 admitting that i need help and just saying like i can't do this by myself Um, and it's, you know, I I call on God more in situations where I'm scared than I do, which is all the time, um, than I do when I want more food because I usually, all the structures that I have around my plan of eating and turning everything over, like that's working pretty well for me. So I don't usually feel this, like I have to have more, but I do feel this like you're not good enough like that the disease says that to me a lot and then like before I get on a conference call (laughs) or before I step into a meeting with someone I'm intimidated by I um I just say God give me the words God be with me like show me what to do um and that tends to work I don't know why I have no idea I don't have to know why thank you yeah Um. Do you, do you ever find that you get, like, so overwhelmed with all the things that you should do, could do, might do, what have you, that you paralyzed? And in that instance, what would you do? In program or in life? Well, to me, in program, I
1: guess. Like, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: do I ever get so overwhelmed with all the things I could, should, and would do uh, that I get paralyzed? Yeah. I get overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed. I have a big, messy life. Um, and... I think the thing that I I try to do is get to a meeting. You know, when I get overwhelmed, like, it's the only space that I have where no one's asking anything of me, you know, where I can show for myself. Um, uh, I get a lot of massages. I require a lot of maintenance. (laughs) Uh, I get a lot of massages and manicures and, like, you know, I really, like, I really barter with my husband for that time to go take care of myself. Um, and then the thing that really works for me is is that pause, is to go, you know, when in doubt, pause. Like, sometimes the best action to take is no action, which is a totally counterintuitive thought for me. Um, but, you know, this, whatever it is that's pressing on me, it's still going to be there after I, you know, go and walk and, and you know, go do something and then come back or go outside and make a phone call to a fellow. Um, and and that, you know, that's, that's definitely what can work for me. Like in the middle of weird situations, I call my sponsor, you know. So, um, yeah, the, the way to to not be overwhelmed for me is to lean into program. Yeah. Hi. <coughs> Thank you so much. Uh, how do you deal with... People on the outside questioning what you're doing or encouraging you to eat something, especially now with the holidays. Um, So how do I deal with people on the outside who are not program people encouraging me to eat something? Uh, I just say no. (laughs) I tell them I don't eat sugar. You know, I tell them I can't eat that. I say thanks so much. I can't eat that. Um, You know, that looks great. I wish I could have that. Um, I really, um, like my food is not any of anybody else's business. And if it makes them upset that I'm not going to eat something, that's their problem. (laughs) That's really not on me. Um, it's, you know, uh, yeah, I think the pressure, that I used to feel to eat every single morsel of everything and taste everything and and eat every dessert and everything was way more intense than what anybody on the outside would ever say to me. Time's up. (laughs)